0: Matt Boudreaux.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 238 you're listening to. My guest today is Clint Bennett, music editor based in Los Angeles and coincidentally an old friend of mine. And he works in the world of film and music as a music editor. And he's worked on some pretty heavy stuff, including uh, Blade Runner 2049, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Pokemon, Detective Pikachu. He's worked on the Law and Order series a bit. Just a ton of movies. I will include a link to his IMDb uh, listing, and you can check out his complete filmography of everything he's worked on. And uh, it's pretty impressive. We just haven't gone down the road very much of many film people. We've had a few, but I think we need more. So very excited to bring you Clint Bennett here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, grab your coffee cups. Let's talk about old Pro Tools sessions. Boy, doesn't that sound like fun. Can we just talk about something else instead? No, that's fine. We'll talk about this. I really want to share this. I'm, you know, you guys will probably think it's nothing, but... I don't know. I was, I was blown away by it. So I have this client, and he's been a client of mine for about 16, 17 years. And he got together with me recently so we could kind of um, archive the last 16 years' worth of material, because it was spread on various drives and backed up in certain ways. We had multiple copies, and you know we were covered in case of a disaster, but it just was a little disorganized. And so the, the goal of our session together... Which is going to be multiple sessions, because that's a lot of years worth of stuff, is to just document it all in a spreadsheet of what we've got, where it's at, and uh, consolidate everything into one primary location and then backups and archives to those locations, so to speak. So we got together, and we were in the midst of doing this, and we came across some Pro Tools sessions from 2003. If you're listening to this fresh, it's 2019 as I tell this story. So 16-year-old Pro Tools sessions. I think they were Pro Tools 5.1 sessions. And at the time, when I made them, they were using, well, I chose to use Sound Designer 2 file format at that time. Those of you old enough will remember Sound Designer Two. Those of you who are not old enough will scratch your head and go, "What is Sound Designer 2? Google it; you can figure it out. Anyways, we uh, we try to open up with Pro Tools 2019 these 5.1 sessions, and of course it threw up the message, you know, this is cur- the files are corrupt, and it's not going to play. And I scratched my head for a bit, and I was like, "Hmm, there's got to be more to this." And figured out they were Sound Designer 2 files, realized, okay, okay, there's gotta be a trick to this. What's the trick? I can't remember, it's been too long. And lo and behold, uh, shout out to our friends over at Production Expert and James and all the crew over there. They had a video, of course, that explained the whole process. And if you ever run into this, check it out. They do have a video and it basically explains that you use Pro Tools 10 to open sessions from that long ago generation. And what it'll do is it will convert those Sound Designer 2 files to WAV files. And then you can save it and then open it in your modern day Pro Tools and be just fine. So here we were figuring our way through this and it worked out and it dawned on me once we were uh, complete, you know, once we were saved in the new format and all that, and it was all working, I thought to myself, damn it, those are 16 year old Pro Tools sessions. And that just worked like a charm. You know, fortunately I had, uh, um, I, in fact, I've got Ben Bernstein, former WCA guest Ben Bernstein's Mac Pro here in front of me as a uh, another machine to deal with files like this, because it's got Pro Tools 10 on it. But even if I didn't have that machine, you know, I could figure out how to get Pro Tools 10 and, you know, get this solved. But it was an interesting thing to have happen. And in the process of doing this, it made me realize you know maybe this is something you all do but i i certainly don't and i'm going to start doing it we had created a google doc to document basic information at, at the very least you know sample rate bit rate pro tools version location on which drive what's the directory to get to that that particular song or pro Tools session all this stuff and i thought man if we had done this back then we would know exactly what we were looking at from the minute we looked at it because it took a couple rounds to go, wait, why does this say it's corrupt? What's the problem? And, you know, it all got solved. But the point is, is consider, and maybe you already do this, like I say, consider when you start a new session, a new record, uh, whatever it is, whatever you're working on that's in audio, just create a Google Doc that you can access maybe share it with the client you're working with so that they have access to it and it's not, you know, hidden somewhere. And that way, 16 years down the road, you'll know what you have, you'll know where it's at, you'll know all the particulars about it. Now, back in the day with tapes, I think people were a little more thorough with their documentation with, you know, track sheets and the, you know, writing on the tape box so that, you know, somebody in the future could know what they had in front of them. And, you know, unless you are in the habit of doing that with your your DAW sessions these days, these things, you know, can become a mystery. And I I know I bring this, I've brought this up in the past, too. You know, if you should die, get hit by a bus, have a heart attack, whatever, and you leave no record of any of this, nobody's going to be able to figure it out for a while. It's going to take them a while to find the stuff. And, you know, people like to put out box sets or best ofs and I say this in in the wake of uh, you know the revelations of the universal fire, where everybody lost their masters. So, just be mindful of keeping track of what you have. I'll put some links that uh, the that the uh, producers and engineers wing from Naris have uh, put together about you know documenting stuff. So maybe you can combine uh, your own methodology with the Neris Methodology, and uh, you can make sure that you're covered and people know where things are at. So just food for thought. Document that stuff. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out, and if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality, If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get on with it. Let's talk to Clint Bennett here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast, Clint.
0: Great to see you. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: As I said on the phone when we were setting this all up, I said, you know, I think I saw you at AES or NAM. Maybe it was AES. Maybe it was in San Francisco AES. That's how long ago it was.
0: Oh, that was a bit ago.
1: Because AES hasn't been in San Francisco in I don't know how long. Many years. That's the last time we saw each other, but we know each other because of, shall we just call it, 90s San Francisco or
0: yeah, early yeah, 90s great, San Francisco? The great 90s music scene of San Francisco.
1: And you brought it to my attention that you were working for Kat. What's her last name? Serdowski.
0: Serdowski, yeah.
1: And Kat was the manager of the Four Non Blondes, and I was in The Sextants at the time, in the band The Sextants, and Four Non Blondes and The Sextants would play a lot of shows together. Exactly. So, you know, we had cause to to meet up, and, and I can't remember the circumstances over which we met.
0: I just remember, I think I remember the first meeting, because I was working at the time for Kat as her assistant. I mean, I'd started as her intern, and that lasted about a week, and then then I was her assistant. I think it was over a dinner. It was like a business dinner that we just happened to be at. And it was sort of, a, you know, celebratory. And it was the four non-blondes. So all of them and me and Kat and then all of the sextants. And I think the attorney, because I think it was the same attorney that sort of did all your deals or something. And that's, that's sort of the the vag- v- vaguenesses of my memory. But it could be wrong. It's a long time ago.
1: We go back a ways. I'll tell you, I had, a, I had kind of an odd memory appear. For me, where you were in a band? What was the name of the band you were in?
0: Well, I was in Sweet Virginia for a long time. That was sort of my band, and then after that was a band called Brando. Brando, sort of, which was like four of the five members of Sweet Virginia.
1: Okay, so. right. I don't know if you remember this. I I remember this. You gave me a DAT tape to master, and I did a shitty job of it. <laughs> and I remember you you saying. Yeah, I don't know. It just the symbols just sound louder. And I was like, Oh, bummer. Oh, that's
0: hysterical. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Well, it's not
1: like I knew what I was doing, obviously. So those are some ancient memories to to share with you audience. So let's let's get into some Clint specific history here. Where did you grow up originally?
0: In Palo Alto mainly. So Palo Alto and my mother moved around a bit in the Bay Area, but I pretty much was in Palo Alto for the bulk of my childhood.
1: And then how did you get involved? Like what led to you working for Kat Sardofsky?
0: I was living in San Francisco and I was going to SF State in the broadcast communications department. It was a great program. Anyway, I was working there. And I was trying to play in bands, just like we all were back then and very tenacious and very curious mind. Like I just I love learning stuff and I love and I knew nothing about how to become like a professional musician or or anything, but I knew that a good thing to do would be to just learn everything I possibly could about music and anything surrounding music. When I went to school I learned, oh wow, I, I didn't have to study business. I could study audio production and all that. I had no idea until I even got there. That was really eye-opening because I'd already spent time in studios. And then I was also like, wow, I'd love to work for a manager or something, like some sort of, I want to learn the business side, you know, and, and then I I want to learn the booking side. I want to learn some, about some legal stuff. And I, wanna, I just wanted to get a really wide understanding of everything having to do with music. I think Kat had sort of put up a posting at one point at the school looking for an intern, But I remember interning for her for it it couldn't have been more than a week or so, at which point we decided it would be much better if I just started working for her more often. Pretty much when I wasn't at school, I was working with her or, and then I would try to play also. So that would be nights or off days or whatever I could work out. What kind of stuff were you doing for Kat at that time? Everything from bookkeeping to answering the phone to, it was like assistant work. So everything from helping to organize, you know, do logistics of anything that we had to get done or make calls or help the band with logistics, you Mm -hmm. know, it was right at the time that Foreign Blondes had gotten signed, actually right before and then right when they got signed and then through their whole run with Linda. That was a lot of fun. I learned a ton, a ton about sort of a piece of like, oh, the record industry just from that angle and from the business side and really sort of paying attention to what was going on and, but I just did pretty much anything, anything that needed to get done just to try to help catch at an immense workload, pretty much always working. It's amazing how much work goes into how many people and how much work goes into helping making a band or an artist actually successful in a commercial way. And as you know, as well, I mean, it's not,
1: it ain't easy.
0: It takes a village. It really does. And it, and it takes a, a well-coordinated one at that to make it seem natural.
1: Also for the audience, this was pre-internet, pre-cell phone. Oh yeah.
0: Pre-internet, pre-cell phone. It was phone calls. It was, I think I had built a little filemaker database for her at one point on like a little Mac classic or whatever we had, the little tiny ones. And, Was using that to help track stuff. You know, we were dealing with so many things. We'd even do like demo derbies. She gets so many demos and she would actually listen to these things. You know, she would try to mark out time to go through and just listen to stuff that came into the office, you know? I mean, we didn't have a ton of time to do it. So I I can't say that we listened through everything, but, (laughs) but it also gave me a really good awareness that like as a band member, I remember... How frustrating it was You on the reverse side. This was back when, you know, it was all about trying to get a deal or get an A&R person's attention or these kinds of things. No one knew how to do it. And you would send tapes or whatever you had. It never dawned on you, like, why aren't these people listening to all this great stuff? Of course, I mean, great being relative, but... Working on the other side of it, it made me realize, okay, so people working in this business that are, like, they literally just have so little extra time to do that sort of thing. No wonder people sort of pick up stuff from people they know. They don't have time to filter through. They're busy.
1: To curate music... Is a difficult thing and and i and i would agree that's why a lot of people rely on word of mouth and absolutely suggestions it's like oh you've you've vetted this band Oh, okay they you you like them all right i'll check them out
0: like i still get introduced to stuff that way my wife's actually a music supervisor and so she she does spend time doing that sort of thing like getting new stuff talking to people and so i hear about all kinds of things sometimes Oh, you got to hear this
1: let's move on from cat and the four non-blondes and talk about your bands and the things you learned about audio from those sure. bands
0: yeah well i always had a really deep interest in the recording side and the audio side in general i was like the tinkerer as well as uh, the musician i had like the two brains sort of the one brain is the music brain and then i had this just tinkerer brain i loved the figuring out how to do things and I was always the guy with the sound equipment. I was always the guy with the vans. I was always the guy, you know, just like everything related to, t- I was the business guy. What It didn't matter. I loved all of the aspects, but audio in particular, I started realizing that I really enjoyed the recording side of it, like the studio side of it as well. And the live side, I ended up doing a bunch of live sound in San Francisco when I was there with other bands that I started meeting as as a product of playing in the scene and all that. And so I would do front of house for them as like, you know, little extra gigs and that kind of things. So we're all trying to stay afloat. But I'd say it was mostly just a great interest in like the studio stuff. And then the, the schooling helped. I was a little ahead of the curve when I started school. I'd already spent time in studios and around that kind of equipment. But it was great. Like I had some great teachers, this guy, Josh Hecht and John Barsotti. Mm -hmm. We hung out a lot and they gave me sort of run of the place. And I really got to spend time with two-inch decks and consoles and equipment. And they really gave me a good foundation for engineering on that side, a good sort of all the rudiments of the stuff that I was sort of doing, but understanding a little better what was going on a little bit more I learned a lot more about acoustics and about psychoacoustics and sort of the psychology of sound and all sorts of things that really helped and sort of apply in any venue any any medium of sound all all of the good sort of basics I got from that experience it was great and so it just kept fueling and fueling and as I started to get do less and less with the band stuff that sort of petered out for me uh, towards the late 90s i started doing more and more work with bands like local bands and local artists and just recording them or producing them or helping out or doing live sound and it was like a really great period of time for music in san francisco and i I just spent as much time as I could doing that, you know, recording my own band, helping out with that, doing live recording, working with the live sound engineers, learning more about that. I just, I just had a, a a very strong desire to want to learn about all of those things. I think part of it is just a control. Like I wanted to be to understand how to control these things and how to not feel like I didn't understand them.
1: Were you feeling like you were growing disenchanted as a player at all?
0: No, it was more. As a, without getting into the politics of being in a band, but I'd say it was, it was more that the first band, Sweet Virginia, went for many years. We enjoyed like really good regional success. I was shocked. It was a
1: great band. I, I totally Thanks. remember.
0: No, it was, it was, look, it was really fortunate. It grew very organically. I started out with a very low expectation as far as I wasn't trying to hit any, I think my original Goal at the time was like, I just want to be able to play at like the small bar down the street. That was it. And then it just it naturally grew. And then as it grew, the aspirations grew along with it. Anyways, we did, we actually did really well. I got to play all my favorite venues. I mean, just stuff that you dreamt about as a kid, watching bands and all that. I got to fulfill a lot of those dreams, like a lot of those sort of just aspirations. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was a really low, just awesome experience. But there did come a point where there were reasons within the band that I knew that we were probably maxed. Like we were probably maxed at what we were going to be able to do with the band in a commercial sense,
1: Mm -hmm. you know,
0: and probably in a creative sense too, but in a commercial sense. And I was getting older and although I still loved it, I was like, well, there is a reality. I want to, I would love to be able to not have to live paycheck to paycheck, you know, also but I was still really tenacious and determined to work in music. Like, I just, there wasn't really an option for me. So it was sort of a little bit of probably just a healthy dose of ignorance and a lot of energy and drive, you know, <laughs> to just make sure, like, I'm going to work in music somehow. Right. <laughs> you know, make it work somehow. And because I never can imagine that I, would be where I am now and doing what I'm doing now, that wasn't even on my radar back then. So it's amazing sort of the twists and turns that the paths that open up in front of you and you're sort of willing to see them and then jump on them and trust where that leads. It's amazing where you find you might end up. That's what I've noticed.
1: At some point you left the Bay Area and you went to Southern California.
0: Yeah, that was in 2000. In 2000, I decided, again, a healthy dose of ignorance, a lot of drive and a desire to up the game a little. I decided that I wanted to get into film on the music side. You know, Napster actually had something to do with it. When when Napster sort of hit, because originally I was, I wanted to do records. I mean, that's, yeah. I've been doing music since I was, before I can even remember. I just, I love music. I'm so passionate about music. But I do remember Napster, and I remember just having a sense, and this was before it really was a big news, like, look at what's happening. I just had a, there's some sense something about this is going to be disruptive to my career goals <laughs> as far as being like an engineer or the industry in general and how viable it might be. You know, because if things stop selling as much, it means there's less stuff being made or less money going into stuff being made, which means there's less money to pay people, which means there's less jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You follow the train down the line. And I said, huh, well, the film industry is pretty strong and I love film. I love cinema and I've always been a huge movie goer and story I love stories and and music in movies is just extremely powerful and I said, "Well, I want to do that. Why not?" Let me
1: ask you, were the, was there anybody in your life at that moment that helped influence that decision?
0: N- not really, honestly. I just not
1: not even an experience?
0: No, cuz I didn't really know anybody in in that world. Huh? Like I I just knew I knew that I wanted to stay in music and I knew that I guess my gut told me, "Well, one way to possibly do that, and do that throughout, as, as I got older, because I also noticed that in the film business, experience and age isn't necessarily treated as something that you have to jump. Whereas like in rock and roll, it can be challenging. Not always, certainly, because there's some phenomenal talent and engineers that have been doing it for a very long time, and they will continue to keep doing it until they probably can't any longer. But it is a little more of a youth Or had been at the time was more of sort of a youth centric thing and I'm thinking well down the line like I'd love to be able to keep doing this and I see the film business might be a little stronger in that department. I don't know I what there actually wasn't really anyone because I didn't I knew no one from that world at all.
1: Hey our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid, and if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com/wca30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com/wca30.
0: What is it you do now? Well, now I'm I work as a music editor and on on films, so feature films primarily, some TV shows, the occasional ad here and there, but pretty much all features. That's what it, that's what takes up the bulk of my time.
1: What does that mean?
0: I don't think even some of my closest friends or family that aren't in the business of film down here even still to this day understand exactly what I do for a living. They they understand that I work on cool movies and all that, but it's usually easier for them to just tell people he does the music, you, you know, I mean, I'm not the composer, but I work very closely with the composer. What does a music editor to do? I think really an easy way to sum it up, you know, they're sort of, they end up being like the conduit between the filmmaker and the music and the sort of the liaison between the directors and the producers and the composer and the music supervisor on a creative and political Level it's all all things above. So, for instance, I will typically be with a film from beginning of post production. So once a film is finished shooting, this is assuming the film is not a musical. That's a whole different world. So if it's a musical, there's going to be some music editorial happening pre production also, and following through production because you're going to be working with on camera stuff. Mm -hmm. But let's just put that aside. It's a real that's a more specialized avenue. So for Most things I'll be on during post-production. So that's after filming or initial filming. Once they've started cutting what's called the director's cut. So the director will get a set number of weeks to put together their version of what the film, they think the film should be. And that's when typically I will start. Certainly the bigger the project, the earlier I'll start. And my job at that point is is pretty simple. Well, it's simple in the sense that it's very specific and it's to help the director realize a tone and a character and a shape for the sound and feel of the movie that he's building. Because at this point, we generally don't have the composer. Like The composer isn't either hired yet or hasn't started yet because it's the movie isn't a movie yet. It's still... A basic assembly, and they're just still messing with all kinds of things, order, sequences, performances, visual effects, I mean, all kinds of things. But through that process, they're trying to also find a tone, make scenes work, figure out how to pace things, figure out how, to, how they want things to feel, how they th- want things to sound, generally speaking. And so my job is to create what they call a temp score, which is basically, I take music from anywhere, like any score, any it's all temporary. It's all just for for internal use. So it's not publicly performed, so you don't run into those kinds of rights issues. But it's, I'll take anything. It's all fair game and I'll, I'll sort of bend, Mangle up, combine, I'll play stuff. It's whatever it takes to sort of build a fake or temporary version of what the score might be, even though the final score might be drastically different. At least it's a version that can play. Because throughout the process of building the movie in that, There's a lot of people that end up needing to see it in various states. There's producers and studio execs and all kinds of people, and it has to play like a movie. There has to be temporary effects. It has to still feel like a film or scenes that might be working aren't working, or at least they can't see it. So they have to see it. It has to feel authentic to them, like they're going to the movies, and you sort of put it together. And that's a, that's a full-time job. There's a lot that goes on there as far as trying to get that right, working with the directors on that and the picture editor, because they're very involved in how that's going to turn out. Some have a lot of very clear ideas of what they want. Some don't really know, and and they're looking to you for guidance, or they're looking to you to help them realize that that you've sort of helped them define a direction, or you know Hmm. who might be composing coming on. So you're thinking, okay, I know that The director wants a score to be a little more electronic, not so traditional, but some big elements. So I'm going to make sure that when I put this together, I'm going to see if I can stick within that palette. As long as it works, like as long as it feels right in the picture, when you put it up against picture, it may not stick. If it doesn't stick, then you got to go some other direction.
1: Are you sitting in a post-production facility with a cut of the film trying to make things work sonically by throwing up songs or... Recordings that already exist?
0: Yeah. As a temp? Yeah, that's a pretty straightforward way of putting it. Yeah, for sure. Songs will come in. Sometimes they'll know we want songs here and here. And then I'll either be working with that or I'll be working with a music supervisor who will be providing stuff like songs that maybe are things that we know we can get or the things that they think might be good artistically. I'm trying to make those work in scenes. And then the other bits, the underscore... Which becomes a really big part of it that just is i'll take bits and pieces from multiple scores sometimes and you combine them and i need this cool low-end thing from this and then like well, that's good but now i need another part to do this thing here at this moment but it doesn't exist in this piece so let me go find something else and get in the right key and make that work and like oh that doesn't really work maybe i can just play something on the synth you know maybe that fits better and
1: is there somebody looking over your shoulder as
0: you're doing that, or are you able no. to work autonomously? No, I work autonomously. I mean, I'll work, I have my own office. So typically when a film starts, the post-production team will set up offices at the st- one of the studios or a post-production facility. And I'll, I will usually be included in that unless I'm sort of working out of my home studio. But typically it's, in during that process, it tends to be a little better to be there because you'll need the interaction, the immediacy with the director and the editor a lot of times, or they'll need it. They'll have done a quick reshuffle of some scenes and they'll say, Hey, we need this re-looked at because what was working there isn't working there at all anymore because we sort of changed the way it all moves. And we have to show it to the director at 6 PM. Can you figure out something or whatever is sure. So they'll kick me a new picture for that segment and I'll, work on it and try to get something to them so they have it in time to play. Well, so
1: in terms of making a living, is this something one makes a decent living
0: at? Yeah, I'm really fortunate. It's been a fantastic career. Okay. It's it's a really great career.
1: Walk me through the the bullet point steps of how you wound up in that position from the moment you got to, to Southern California to now.
0: I got to Southern California, didn't know anyone really. I'm not the best natural networker, but I sort of forced myself to get out and meet some people for what I could. I happened to meet a guy named Brian Reardon, who at the time owned a, well, he still does, owns a post-production facility called Levels Audio. I'd given him a reel. I remember I had done, like, you know, I'd taken some commercials and we'd sort of replaced some stuff. Just, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I'd given him just a reel, not in like, here's what I've done, but here's some examples of like whatever and he found it intriguing so I had a short meeting with him which was really cool and then I was thinking oh maybe I can go into post audio I'm mean, gonna I know anything about anything when it came to to how these things work I mean I knew I understood the mechanics of post audio I certainly I had already spent time mixing and all that but I didn't know how the business operated so I was sort of learning as I went but then that never completed so I met Brian about cut to Seven months later, Brian introduces me to his business partner who owns the building that he's in, who happens to be a composer, a guy by the name of Anthony Marinelli. And he goes, you know, he needs a new engineer. His his longtime engineer doesn't have as much time anymore. And he's really looking for someone new mm. to, to help him out. I think you should meet him. Okay, great. So I went, went and met with Anthony. That sparked up a relationship. We got along really well. And decided, well, he goes, I don't have anything right at the moment, but if I do, maybe we'll try something. And I said, well, look, when I have some spare time, why don't I come down to your studio and I'll just help you out just so I can just hang out and we get to know each other and I'll, or I'll clean up your studio, I'll wind cables, I'll do whatever it takes, just maybe I'll help straighten up. I knew he had some, so some production rooms that could use a little reconfiguring. And I, I just said, well, look, let me just come down and help when I'm not busy. And about a week later of being there, he goes, Hey, I have this project. <laughs> do you want to work on it with me? Sure. So then we started working on some independent film, you know, that, and did that for a couple of months. Worked on the score. And for that, I started engineering, mixing, music editing, did some playing and even some additional writing on that one, which was really fun. And then I worked with Anthony until about like straight. I worked, I ended up working with him until about 2008. Like I was working a lot. I was doing okay, but I was trying to live in Los Angeles. I can't tell you how much I owe to Anthony as far as just like the the ability to sort of take, it was one of those things where opportunity, you've lined up all of your past experience and you've kept your eyes open and opportunity presents and then you just kind of just jump. And I was able to to land in this place where I could use all of the stuff I'd learned and be able to learn on the job how to how to really do a film score, like the important about like how to put one together how to story tell that's a big one like how do you help story tell with music not just put a cool groove or feel or or mood into a scene but really help the narrative and that's a different thing and how do you arrange like learn about arrangements i mean i learned all kinds of things musically i got to do lots of production work i got to record amazing musicians like top shelf musicians because there's a good number of them in los (laughs) angeles which also made me learn that, man, when you have great musicians, the engineering part is really, <laughs> really easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I know <laughs> what you're
1: talking about on so many levels.
0: And they'll say, wow, this sounds really great. I'm like, I just literally, I just put up some mics and got some level. I mean, it's all you. Like, it's all them. Great players. Make my job, at least when I'm engineering, so easy. I think you know you got to listen, you got to use your ears, you got, and you got to be on top of it. But they make it, they make it so much fun too. Oh, and and it, so that's the other thing, I, so
1: much fun. And you waste so so much less time. Case in point, I was doing a voiceover demo with somebody a couple days ago, and after having done a string of voiceover demos with people who were just subpar, this guy yeah. walks in and works for like an insurance company and thinks he's gonna change careers. This guy was unbelievable how good he was. And the producer and I were looking at each other going, can they all be like this?
0: Yeah, you get good talent is, you can't replace good talent.
1: I know. (laughs) And all I did was say, could you just lean in a little more on the mic so we can really kind of take advantage of that proximity effect? And he's like, like this? There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over dropbox that looks totally amateur at this point use samply.app and use that code wca20 and i think you're going to be really thrilled sampley.app. check it
0: out you know what i learned how to do in those instances i learned how to think on my feet really quickly because sessions when i was running sessions for ads or, or film stuff they're very limited in time they're very quick the setup is really quick You you gotta be in, out, and then in like maybe another hour, you got a different soloist coming in. And you're like, I gotta be ready for that one. And you gotta get the tracks ready. You gotta be organized. So I learned, really learned, be organized, be detailed, be fast. Like be fast, fast, fast. Rely on like instinct and skill. So hopefully you'd amassed enough skill to the point where you would at least trust it or blindly go into it thinking that you pretty much could have it. Mm. And then work quickly. And be able to pivot on a dime. If there was a technical problem, just be comfortable. Be comfortable also making mistakes. You have to be willing to sort of go there, and quickly realize, oh, this is not it. Change on a dime. Change your setup. Do whatever it is, and get get the session rolling. Because there isn't the time. It's very limited. It's not like doing a band where you can sort of spend all day. Depending, even the lower budget ones, you'd spend quite a bit of time I'm just kind of goofing off. But on the commercial end of stuff, it was. There wasn't that time. I mean, there was hang time, but right. when you when the session was rolling, it was just rolling. Did you make any horrific
1: mistakes?
0: I didn't. I never made any horrific ones. I made lots of like little ones as I went along and I would correct. I would sort of course correct. Cause there would be things, usually it was it was typically things that I hadn't yet learned about certain specific technical situations. I, nothing comes to mind, but I can just imagine, you know, probably something. I'm sure there was stuff having to do with time code and sync. Mm. I've done that thing where you have the converter set on the wrong sample rate and <laughs> you record and, and then having to go back in. And the way I remedied it was I found a some sort of really simple program that would allow you to actually get in and change the header of the file. So you could tell the file, no, 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 you're not 441, you you're 48, because we work at 48 primarily. And so, but you'd have to do it one by one by one by one and then. It was a, I only, I only did that once. (laughs) That was the one, that was probably the worst. That's all I only did that one time. Yeah. One time. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to make sure I check those Apogees next time we get rolling. (laughs) I learned a ton from Anthony and then how I got to music editing, trying to bring it back around. So there's a lot that happened during that period. I got to work on some cool records. I got to work with Herb Alpert, which was so fun. Wow. It was awesome. It was so awesome. I got to listen to the, like Herb playing the original masters to uh, uh, Whipped Cream and Other Delights, which I remember growing up listening to as a kid and then playing along with them on his trumpet. You know, just like, no, no, that wasn't the take. Go to the next one. And because we were transferring them because we were going to be doing a, a remix album of that album. So that was a lot of fun. And I got to work with the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, which was just a super treat out of new orleans and i got a lot of help from john shout out to to john jennings over at royer he really helped me out on that project and it, it was brilliant you know and i got to do a mix with don was which was really fun that was a i got to work on a solomon burke album which was just it was just a highlight for me i mean what a cool thing and don i learned a lot from don i was i worked with him for one week mixing a record for him and i learned a ton he's just he is so good he's such a musician. So it's all about feel, all about feel for him. Like, it just, does it feel right? Closes, if he's swaying and he'd go check it in his car, it just, you knew you had had it nailed. And if it wasn't quite bumping right, he'd come back and say, well, uh, it should be a little, let's try a little more of this, a little more of that. It's okay. And it was, he was, he was great. Learned a ton from him. Transitioned to music editing. Working with Anthony for a while. I had been doing a ton of music editing, not even, Honestly, like I barely realized that that was a job still, like its own thing, because I was working on more independent film. But what I was starting to notice was there were people that were being hired called music editors, but the studio was hiring them or the production company. And I'm going, wait, I'm sort of doing a lot of that. And I'm granted, there's more that they do that I didn't realize at the time, quickly learned. But I said, well, and this was, you know, back to practical brain. I said, well, these people are being hired by not the composer, but the actual production company. And they're actually part of the union and they get benefits. Like they get health insurance and pensions. I'm thinking, okay, instead of focusing so much on mixing and engineering, I mean, the one thing I must say in the film industry down here is a lot of us do a lot of things, but as far as I, I guess you would say, like marketing yourself, it's a narrow cast. I've found that people tend to like to think of you as one thing in the business of filmmaking. So studios, they'll they'll think of they think of me now as a music editor. That's the only way they know me. They don't know that I, I've recorded and engineered and whatever all these other things. They just he's a music editor. But that's everybody, because there's so many jobs and so many specializations in film. I mean, the world of audio post is huge down here, especially. I mean, just so many different jobs. Everyone has a a lane or two that they kind of stick to. Mm -hmm. So I decided, well, I'm going to change my marketing. I'm going to change my focus and I'm going to get in, I'm going to figure out what I need to do to get in that union. So I can work on the films and be paid as a music editor and get benefits for my family and get setting myself up more for the future, trying to think like, you know, tapping into the whole saving thing. It's like, okay, well, I I need to start planning more. I have kids. I have, you know, responsibilities and I and I really, really, really wanna keep doing music. I really want to stay as a creative. What can I do to make that happen? And saw like, well, there there might be an avenue and it's one that I might be able to compete in rather quickly because of my the the variation of my skill set before I started. And I was blessed with great friends I had met some really good other music editors along the way that really helped me out early on they really gave me the breaks quite frankly
1: and pointed you in the right direction
0: they pointed me in the right direction and then they they sort of gave me you know information as I needed it and then also would get got me my first couple of jobs when when I had no <laughs> when all of my credits read uh, you know mixer or uh, scoring mixer and stuff like that. The director, the editor who was interviewing me and said, well, do you have or have you been a music editor? It's like, no, I was a music editor on all of a lot of those projects, but it's not a credit and it's hard to sell that in this, you know, if it's not listed. So I realized that needs to be like a thing. So
1: a little bit of a chicken in the egg problem there.
0: It was a little bit of a chicken and the egg. And, and I really credit some good friends of mine that believed in my abilities and knew I would be able to tackle anything. And they didn't feel, apparently, they didn't seem to feel at all uneasy about recommending me for jobs. Because that's putting their reputation a little bit on the line by sort of vouching for someone else. And I just, I got on some film. I think the first one I did that way was a mo- movie called Cabin in the Woods was written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard. And it was a blast. It was a blast. I had so much fun. It worked out great. And I made really lasting friendships and relationships. But I got that because they had called one of my friends and she couldn't take the job. And she's like, you should talk to my friend, Clint. He's great at this. Hmm. They did. And we had, a you know, it just, it was one of those, it's like, you get the breaks, you get these lucky breaks, sort of like right, right time, right place. And But it really is about the people that i've sort of come in contact with the people that i've met and my my friendships and acquaintances that i still rely on i may still count on
1: i want to dissect a little bit of that to get somebody to to vouch for you to recommend you does not come overnight that comes with many years of proving yourself and showing yourself as reliable dependable
0: absolutely yeah no no that's not that this is not people that i knew for a week and or people that didn't know that I hadn't been working hard and wasn't good at what I did uh-huh. for years, sort of paying dues. Because in this, in this business, look, I started, I came in 2000, started barely working probably around 2001-ish uh, in the business. Mm-hmm. And I'd say around 20... 10 or 12, somewhere in there is when it started to actually kind of kick into like, oh, this is actually starting to work. It's like a lot of hard work, a lot of long days and a lot of trying to get the next gig. You know, it could have been, it could be sometimes you'd have months where you're just, just going, where can I find another gig? You know, and you have limited contacts at that point. You just keep trying, keep trying and sticking with it. And, Getting better and meeting more people and doing a great job and really, like you say, proving yourself. I try to be so grateful. Every job I get, I'm just like, thank you, thank you. Cause this could end tomorrow, as far as I'm concerned. Sort of the mindset of the freelancer. I feel like, look, this could go away. In likelihood, it won't tomorrow, right. but it could. This yeah. I don't want it's not I can't take it for granted just because you've sort of worked to a spot. You know, I still have to make sure that I level professionalism, do solid work. One of the things I love the most about this job, honestly, and we didn't actually finish talking about what a music editor does. I only gave you like one fraction of it. I love like every day I get to learn something still still like every day like I learn something mm-hmm. and I love that I love learning it keeps me from being stagnant there's so much stuff you know whether it's re- directly related to what I do or related to other things surrounding it or related to music or anything yeah because I keep my eyes open I don't know what this job's going to be in 10 years honestly like the, the role of a music editor has changed already over the last 30 years when I look at the history of what music editors have done and it's going to keep changing and i don't know what the job requirements and what it will look like in ten, 10 years from now or 5 years from now or i have an idea but it could be something totally different and so i want to be flexible and adaptable and energized and excited you know mm-hmm. about the possibilities as opposed to sort of being like well it's not the way it used to be and I, right. it's not good anymore it's like it doesn't matter it's what it is now yeah. you either embrace it or don't
1: i want to ask you about the union tell me what the union brings to the table for you. This is IOTC,
0: right? It is, It's well, it's, it's IOTC, but it's a wing of it called the Editor's Guild. So mm-hmm. that encompasses like picture editors, sound editors, scoring mixers, and dubbing mixers. So dubbing mixers would be the film mixers for people that don't know what dubbing mixer means. They're also called re-recording mixers. Right. So any sort of editorial or mixing, those people have all been lumped into the Editor's Guild. What it brings, well, a little bit of community, which is nice for sure, Most importantly, it brings health insurance. So that's a big one. I get health insurance for my whole family because I work enough hours every six months.
1: Do you get a choice of a plan or is there just one plan?
0: You get a choice. I mean, there's one PPO and then there's an HMO. Is Kaiser in there at all? I don't remember, honestly, because I'm always on the PPO. I'm sort of the Anthem. It's like Anthem and something else. But you get medical, dental, and vision. It's, It's phenomenal. Wow. I mean, it's, and it's worth so much because as a freelancer, I mean, I remember what health insurance premiums were when I had to pay them as an independent, especially once I started having kids and that's expensive. It is really prohibitive, unfortunately, because it's a, and you still end up paying a lot for medical care. So that was a big one, quite frankly. It brings a pension plan, which is nice. So it sort of supplements any saving that I'm able to do on my end.
1: And when you say it brings a pension plan, tell me, Is it like a particular percentage of your salary for a number of years after or?
0: Yeah, there's two plans really, I think. And it's all employer sponsored. So there's no, it's not a 401k, it's not a matching, it's not a, you know, because all of us are independents, you know, in in that sense. But what it is, there's two things. One, based on the amount of hours and years that you've worked throughout your career, when you finally retire, you'll get, there'll be a, a monthly amount. So it's a traditional pension that you'll be paid. There's also a lump sum that you sort of accrued. On top of that, that you'll be able to either take in chunks or in a full thing and do whatever you want with it.
1: So if you're a saver and you have this pension, then retirement could be fairly comfortable.
0: It could be. Yeah, if you're a saver, for sure. I mean, I have an IRA. Being that I'm in this creative line of work, I'm a late starter to saving. Well, A, I live in one of the most expensive cities in the country at this point. I have a family and lots of responsibilities. And now at least I'm able to save some, not as much as I would like, but some. So I do what I can. But before, when I was really paycheck to paycheck in a big way, yeah, saving was really challenging. Very challenging.
1: You mentioned your wife is a music supervisor. Yeah. Do you ever work together on a project?
0: Yeah, we have. We have. We love working together. It's a it's a real bonus for us. Actually, that's that's how we met.
1: How does that work with work life balance and and
0: and the kids? It works really well. I mean, it doesn't happen that often. I mean, my my wife splits time between doing that and also being a songwriter. So she'll sort of take time off supervising to write, and then vice versa but it works great. I mean, we love it because we have a great rapport and a really good, I mean, obviously we have a great rapport, but even on a work level, we have a really good rapport. She has impeccable taste in music. So we'll just have fun. Like there was a period where we did a number of movies back to back together. That was a lot of fun. And we just, we would have a blast because she'll sit there with me a lot of times and we'll go through because it's with her. It's just the song side of it. So if it's a song heavy movie, we'll sit there for days and just go through and try different stuff. And she's like, oh, I found this. Let's try this. And she has great creative ideas. So it's almost like working with a musical partner. It's like when you're in a band, same thing. There's that back and forth and the give and take creatively. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of have that and it's just exciting. It becomes really fun. But we don't do it too often. The opportunities don't always present themselves.
1: You listen to the show. So you know, I talk about diversification a bunch. You actually don't really need to, do you?
0: I used to, for sure, which is how I ended up where I am. I think because I had diversified so much, I think all of that experience allowed me to sort of focus it into this one spot and become, well, I guess you could say, become successful in the, the field that I'm working in now, which is phenomenal. Like, it's just great. Yeah. But I still do, in the back of my mind, always think, when I have time, I try to still produce music or produce songs or help out in places when I can, just to, to keep busy. But you're, you're right in saying that, like I don't have to do that anymore as far as all my eggs are in this basket at this point, but because it's working and because there really isn't time, like it's a full time job, is a lot of time.
1: Your story is very interesting to me in the fact that it highlights the point that if you stay in it where it can lead, you know, and a lot of people will they'll hit a brick wall, they'll hit a slow month, slow year, oh, yeah, and Many they'll of those. and they'll bail. And you stayed in it. And as a result, you're at this point almost almost 20 years later from arriving yeah. in Los Angeles. And you're at a great position.
0: Yeah. A lot of it is like last person standing. I mean, in the sense <laughs> obviously I'm not the last person standing, but you know what I mean. It's like I just I kept going. There were dark months. I mean, there are many times, you know, many times, no money, no whatever. I have to do something else. What am I going to do? Because there is the survival thing, especially when you have a family, then it's, it becomes much more ever present because I'm no longer responsible for just myself. I'm responsible for other people and they're depending on me. So that, that really kicks the fire up. But part of it was just drive. You know what, when I was a kid, there was a guy that lived on the same Street Is Me that played in a band. He played in like a cover band or something. And I was enamored with this guy because he played in a band, you know, and it's like the only guy I knew that he was playing music. I didn't grow up in a music family. We No one knew anybody that did that sort of thing professionally, but this guy did. I mean, granted, he was playing in cover bands at bars at night, but as a young teen, like that didn't mean anything to me. I was just like, this guy plays music. He's got keyboards in his house and he... <laughs> And he gave me the simplest advice with music. He just said, look, music is fantastic. He's like, but really ask yourself, is this something you would do every day even if you weren't getting paid? Could you get up and do this every day even if you weren't getting paid? And if the answer is yes, then you will be fine. This will be fine. Because, But if the answer is no, then maybe there's easier ways to make a living. And I actually did take that to heart. And you know, for me, the answer was yes. Yeah, I, this is what I... Do. Like, this is what I love doing. You know, granted it's a far cry from playing in a band, but in some ways it isn't all of those skills. Like I have to play in a, in a band of creatives firing at the top of their games, like directors that are just super talented and creative people. and. Producers and composers. I mean, the composers that I get to work with on a daily basis are just some seriously talented individuals and musicians. And so when everybody's bringing their A game and the sound team, I mean, I would never want to leave those guys out. I mean, the sound supervisors and dialogue editors and effects editors and ADR people and fully, I mean, everybody, when you have a team, granted it's a bigger band, but when you have a team really bring in their A game, like that's my favorite because. It makes you bring your a game i want it when when you feel like everybody's almost better than you like these people are really good i want to match that it makes you creatively and in the quality of your work and the the fun level it really sort of ups your game like playing sports too you always want to sort of play against someone a little bit better than you because they make you play better
1: yeah you know i i wanted to bring this up and you know when you have a family and you know emergencies kind of pop up whether they're dreadfully serious or just kind of temporary, like, oh my gosh, the car broke down, we got to get the kids to school or whatever random little things that come up. When you're at work and you get those calls and it pulls you out, uh, yeah. have you had to deal with that a lot over the course of the years of, yeah, I'm in the middle yeah. of it right now. Oh shit. Can you, can you just deal with it?
0: If I'm really in the middle of it, then yeah. I mean, you know, my family and my wife her are also very understanding. I, my wife works in the business and she understands it. I am a big, like work-life balance is huge for me. I am very conscious of trying to make sure that my family gets top priority as well as my work. So I try to find the time when I can. I try to make the time when I can for family and at the same time, not at the expense of work, but I have good boundaries at work. And the way I sort of put it is, look, some days my time is more my own and I'm in more control of what I do with my time. And some days the time is not my own. Some days someone else owns my time in a big way. Like, cause depending on what part of the process you're in, I can't decide like, Oh, Hey, we're mixing the film right now. We're on day 10 of whatever. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take off early. Like that's not an option. I mean, if there's an emergency, sure, of course. But it's not an option. And if they decide, Hey, we're going late, we're running behind. We're actually going to, instead of stopping at seven, because typically a day like that would stop at seven, we're going to stop at 10. And you're like, ah, you know, but it happens. And so work-life balance for me ends up being a little more of a continuum. Sometimes the balance swings more work. Sometimes the balance swings more family. And I try to take advantage of the family as much as possible when I can and when I can find opportunity. Yeah. And there, like you say, if someone calls in the middle of something and it's really, I'm in the middle of it, either I can't get to it or if I know it's really something emergent, I can step out and go, Hey, I'm going to step out for a minute.
1: You know, I knew this time would fly by and I'm sorry that it has so quickly because there's, we could almost do a part two of this and maybe we'll do that in the future, but we're going to have to wrap up. Unfortunately,
0: And there is a whole other side of the music editing that we didn't touch on yet, which is once we get to the actual scoring, working with the composer and working with the score and working with the final mix and working with the mixers and all of that stuff. I mean, yeah, we could spend an hour talking about that probably, but it's, it's a lot of really cool stuff, both technical and creative, that you get to blend in. Just your quick
1: parting thoughts on those who might be in the world of music as you were, and mm-hmm. want to make that transition to working in film, and are not sure where they want to be in film, what would you suggest? What would be your first, if, first bit of advice?
0: My first bit of advice is, if you really want to have access to the most opportunities, you probably have to be in Los Angeles. That's the, the reality of the situation. There's some opportunity in New York, it's a smaller pool for that and then London would be the third one but if you're not a UK citizen that doesn't really help you out much because that's the the opportunities and growth potential are there so I would say get yourself here would be one of the things because there's at least a lot of opportunity. That doesn't mean you can't do it other places. It just means that you might hit a certain ceiling you know, as far as the types of projects you can be involved with. And you might carve out a great niche somewhere else, absolutely, and have a fantastic creative and professional life that way. But it's different. If you really want to, I really want to work on these larger movies. You kind of have to get to the place to do it. And then I would say... Be, you know, be it's like I've heard you say before, LA is a little bit about the hang. You know, it's a little bit about being able to meet people and just start trying to work where you can, like work where you can, like get, get in, try different avenues, try things that you haven't thought of. Try Like for a while I was doing a little bit of just sound work, like sound editorial or mixing, just trying different things. Well, maybe that's an avenue for me. I, I Keep your... Options open, like keep your mind open to possibility. I'd say that's the biggest thing because you don't know where you might come across something that you didn't even know that you wanted to do that sparks a an interest for you, that you realize, wow, I actually love this. I'm pretty good at this or whatever it is. And you if you didn't have an open mind, it didn't go into it with like, no, no, I'm gonna only do music. I mean, certainly for me, that was something that was always in my mind, but it didn't stop me from keeping my options open and keeping my eyes open to any possibility related to audio or anything. I mean, we're working with a band manager or working with, you know, whatever it was, like just anything, because you just don't know what might spark a different interest or a different creative interest or a business, whatever it is. And and then just, you know, once you're there, then get your skills in order and you have a good attitude and just jump. Like, just keep jumping, jump through any window that opens for you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Clint, great to see you, man. Great to know yeah. that you're doing really great since I, since I saw you last. And what, uh, what a fascinating career you have.
0: Thank you. I, I definitely realize it. I do not take it for granted at all. Because it, it took a lot to get to this point and And I enjoy it a lot. It's, I feel very, very, very fortunate, but it took a lot of hard work to get to that.
1: I'm really, really happy for you. It sounds awesome.
0: Well, thanks again for being on the show. No, thanks for having me. It's great to see you and talk to you. Clint
1: Bennett here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me today. Want to give a shout out to all of those that worked on today's show, and that includes Anne-Marie Plough on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the working-class audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith. You always have to say Mr. when you say Chuck Smith. For his wonderful voice, uh, spread the word, like us on social media, and uh, until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware...